Yes, get no credit for it, can't sleep anyway. Glad to have you here. If you couldn't sleep this morning, you just kind of stumbled in, couldn't think of anything else to do, we're glad to have you too. I agree with Don Riley 100%. If you don't, if you don't know for sure that you know Jesus Christ as Savior, please see him or me or somebody. Talk to somebody. Surely there's somebody in this room that can help you. My goodness, we'd love to help you if we can. No small groups are great ideas, so we encourage you to get involved in those things too. We've been looking at Proverbs 1 through 9, which is kind of the introduction uh, to the book of Proverbs. We've been talking about proverbial wisdom, which is, you know, 90% of the time it works. You know, you take the basic principles that God has revealed for how to live life and you put them into practice and life turns out well, 90% of the time. We'll cover the other 10% after Christmas. <laughs> We're covering the first 90% now. And we've seen that a big part of this has to do with your sex life. And Solomon thought it was pretty important because he spent a whole bunch of time talking to his son about, about sex. And you can really get your life goofed up if you don't live your sex life the right way. We've seen that. Wisdom we've seen, generally speaking, wisdom is taking the right means to accomplish the right ends. It's selecting the right means to accomplish the good ends for life. That's what wisdom is. I think it's a great definition I borrowed from somewhere. and gave it to you a few weeks ago. And isn't it true in your sex life? It's finding the right means to accomplish the right ends in sex, and we talked about that last time. And we are just simply surrounded with the opposite. We saw on TV that 90 to 95% of the episodes that have anything to do with sexual practice are outside of marriage, and those that are in marriage are usually portrayed very unsatisfactorily, and it's just the opposite of reality. The best sex you can get is in marriage, uh, faithful, faithfully uh, living out your life with one woman. We know that from studies. We know that the people who have the most satisfying sex lives in marriage are those who waited to have sex till they got married. So, I mean, all of our studies are proving that the Bible is actually right. Um, but here I have uh, a newspaper from a university or college that uh, some of you graduated from, and here uh, they're asking in, the, in this article the director of student counseling if there's anything inherently wrong with having sex. And he says, quote, if both parties are in a non-altered state and they're able to make a responsible decision about whether or not they want to engage in sex with someone outside a committed relationship, and both people are being honest with each other, there are people who just really enjoy sex, and they're okay with having sex outside of a committed relationship. Is it possible to do that without there being negative consequences? Yeah, he says. So that's the advice from the college campus, from your student counseling center. And uh, we've just seen how the Bible is in absolute contradiction to that and really excoriates that, that viewpoint and says it leads to total destruction. And yet any student counseling center would feel very embarrassed if they were to say what, what we're saying in here. They would just, they'd just be laughed out of court. Well, I say let them laugh. Last laugh belongs to those who are, who are walking with Christ. Uh, I wanted to mention a couple of other things from last time that, that I didn't get a chance to get around to because of time. One is that uh, it's, it's, you know, first of all, a very important issue for our individual lives, but it's also a cultural issue. And some of you are here very involved in it. George Kirkendall is back there. He's involved in Citizens for Community Values, and some of you are involved in that ministry and I commit it to you. As we look at 
the impact of, of a pornographic culture on all of our souls. I mean, it's very, very uh, damaging to the soul. It's very damaging to marriages and family. And if you want more about that, see George Kirkendall. George, maybe you can hang around afterwards around there for people who want to talk to you about it and how you can get involved in our community. Also, uh, you know, we looked at uh, sex within marriage, and we talked probably last time mostly to those of us who are married because I think dominantly folks in here are married. But you'll notice that the advice here is to the single man. It's to the son, Solomon's son. And I want to say to uh, single folks here that uh, we need to recapture the beauty and the goodness and the power of a single life lived before the Lord. Paul himself was single, and he commended singleness to people. We don't seem to be doing that in our generation. We all seem to think that unless you're married, you're not fulfilled. But that's not the biblical witness. The biblical witness is that singleness is a good thing, and living a celibate life as a single person is a good thing. So for those of you who have lost spouses or you've been divorced, and you're just feeling really lonely, look, this is, a good, this is a good life. And it's a commendable one. Live it out. Play out your script. And uh, honor the Lord in it. Um, there's a very interesting book called The Holy Longing by Ronald Rollheiser. And he's a Catholic monk. And he, uh, in one of the chapters there, talked about sex. And he said, he speculated as to uh, why the Lord Jesus himself was single. And I just thought it was a wonderful speculation. He said, first of all, that uh, Jesus in every way identified with the poor, the lonely, the marginalized. So for those of us here who are single and know the, the loneliness of a single life, which can only be exceeded by the loneliness of an unhappily married life, um, but for those of you who know the loneliness of a single life, Rohauser was saying Jesus really intentionally took on the burden that you have and identified with you. And he, he did that, of course, in his poverty and in some other ways, in his sufferings. He identifies with those who suffer of all, with all sorts of maladies and difficulties and afflictions. And if loneliness is an affliction for you, Jesus understands completely. But Rollheiser went on to say, this was the most profound thing, I think, in the whole book. He said he also speculates that Jesus did not give himself to a woman so that he could give himself to everybody. Isn't that wonderful? So that he was speculating that in Jesus' singleness, actually, rather than pulling away from humanity, the whole purpose of his singleness was to embrace all of humanity. And of course, we know in the scriptures he's called the bridegroom of the church. So uh, as long as we're living life like that, to serve our neighbor and taking whatever our role is in life sexually, whether it's to be engaged with a woman in marriage or it's to be celibate as a single, play out the script, play it out boldly, play it out loudly, play it out gloriously before the Lord and enjoy yourselves. And this really is real joy. So that brings us up to chapter 6, which is kind of tucked in the middle of this discussion about sexuality. It's so interesting. And you may wonder, why did Solomon in this ninth lecture, so to speak, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 19, which we're going to read, why did he tuck in these pieces of advice about things that don't seem to be related to sex? Well, I think we're going to see that in, in this chapter, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, Solomon takes three lives that need to be avoided. It's not only the promiscuous sexual life that needs to be avoided, but there are three other types of life that would need to be avoided because all of them are dangerous. All of them come under God's judgment. 
all of them lead to fruitlessness. And all of them are a trap. So Solomon, once again, is coaching his son. Saying, I want you to live a life that's really fruitful. I want you to live a life that's full. I want you to live a life that's meaningful. I don't want you to get trapped with the foolishness of life. So right in the middle of this sex talk, he breaks off and gives a lecture on these three lifestyles that are just as dangerous. Let's take a look at it. Uh, Proverbs 6. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have struck hands and pledged for another, if you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, to free yourself, since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands. Go and humble yourself. Pressure, plea with your neighbor. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has, how'd you like your dad just to say, call you a sluggard? That's a good way to start a conversation. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. A scoundrel and villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart, he always stirs up dissension. Therefore disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. All right. Now, in verses 1 through 5, we get the first one of these characters we need to talk about. And that is the person who makes a foolish guarantee. And the word is, don't do it. Don't make foolish guarantees. Gentlemen, is there anything that needs to be stressed more <laughs> this week in our culture than this? Don't make foolish guarantees. Making foolish guarantees has cost people $2 trillion in their, in their retirement accounts these past weeks. <clears throat> because people have made foolish guarantees. They put up security for something that they shouldn't have put up security for. They have clasped hands and made a deal. And what Solomon is saying here, son, when someone comes up and they need a loan and they want you to provide security for it, don't do it. Uh, because you have no control over that person's behavior. So they don't pay their bill and whoop, there goes the farm. So don't put it up in the first place. Now, I think we, we would say, looking at the full testament, uh, testimony of Scripture, that this was a legal practice. I mean, for example, if, if, if I took a loan from you uh, and uh, you wanted some surety of it, I could give you my cloak. But the Bible says if I'm a poor man, give me my cloak back at night because that's all I have to sleep in. But then you can take my cloak back in the morning as surety that I'll pay you back your debt. So surety has a place in the scriptures. And certainly in a capitalistic society, you can't get along without surety. If you 
If you borrow money to buy a house, you put your house up as collateral. But if somebody else wants to borrow, uh, buy a house and they want you to co-sign, I think the Proverbs are saying, at least, would you please be very careful? And if you do that, would you write off your asset? Write it off. Don't assume you have it anymore. It's a liability. And most people don't count up, don't reckon their liabilities to themselves. And they have these sureties, and they don't add them up. Isn't this exactly what banks did? Our whole banking system was bundling up all of these liabilities shipping them off and selling them to people, and people were just assuming, well, they're good. Well, what if they're not good? Well, excuse me, somebody forgot to think of that. You're a banker. You should be thinking about that. I mean, even bankers didn't think about it. And so we end up paying, paying the bill. And if you take, it seems to me, if you take uh, the, the mortgage crisis, the, the subprime lending crisis, in our country, and in some ways, not in every way, maybe not even dominantly, but in some ways it was, was well-intentioned. Because some 10, 15 years ago, uh, there, there were many in our country that wanted to see home ownership go up. That's always a good sign. More people who own their homes, they're more committed to their neighborhoods, they're more committed to home life and so on, so home ownership's a good thing. But when you do it in irresponsible ways, I mean, you can't just throw money at it. You have to throw your life at it. You have to throw relationships at it. And you know this as well as I do. Some of you who are older, that you've watched a couple or three generations come through, and when you throw money at them and you don't train them and they're not disciplined, they just take your money and they misspend it, and their lives end up being actually more miserable with all your money than they would have been if you hadn't given them money in the first place. Because you gave them money, but you didn't give them your love and life and time. So you have to train people. And so what we forgot in the, in the attempt to help the poor was if you want to help the poor, then get to know the poor and really find out how to help them. Don't just throw gifts at them. Give them your life. And in the midst of giving them your life, then you'll figure out the ways in which you can help them own homes and do other things. Those who, of you who have been involved in Habitat with Humanity, you know one of the biggest problems with Habitat for Humanity is that we build these houses for the poor, and as soon as they're given their house, some snake comes by and offers to give them $20,000, you know, and offers to give them $100,000, and all they have to do is just sign this note, of, uh, you know, a mortgage on their home. Now they've got a mortgage they can't afford, and pretty soon they're out of the house. And you built the house for them. But they were looking for quick cash. If you don't train people in how to live disciplined lives, you can't just throw money at it. And there's some people who are manipulated by their children into co-signing all kinds of things. And I've known some people who in their old age, because of irresponsible, poorly disciplined relationships as adults with adult children, they end up in the poorhouse because they didn't add up their liabilities and they didn't take them seriously. Solomon is saying, son, don't do that. Now Solomon was, you know, a very wealthy man. And I'm, I'm assured that he was shrewd as well. But he says, son, don't do that. You need to take seriously your liabilities. And if you start just signing off, co-signing things and, and putting up surety for things, you're going to end up in trouble. And, and look, at the, look at what he says here. He says, first of all, renegotiate, verse 3a. Then do this, my son, to free yourself, since you've fallen into your neighbor's hands. He says, you are now at the mercy of your neighbor. You can't control what happens to your own, your own assets. He's got control of your assets. 
You're trapped. You're ensnared by your neighbor. He says, free yourself. Renegotiate. Now, renegotiation is a perfectly legitimate thing. It's bilateral. You're not cheating anybody. Solomon is saying, why don't you buy your way out of this one? Do whatever you have to do. Get yourself out of that. Now, I'm not trying to say we don't ever put up surety for any, anything. I'm not saying we don't have mortgages. I have one. Uh, I'm not saying that we don't borrow money. I'm not saying that we don't use our bank assets to have more loans. I'm just saying be careful to account for all your liabilities and take them seriously and don't live irresponsibly. Don't go beyond the boundaries. That's what happened to us. It's happened to us, you know, in, in my brief adult life, we, you know, we've had the SNL crisis and the dot-com crisis and, you know, the, this crisis. I'm going, hello. You know, you'd think that economic history, you know, it's, this was pretty recent, all these things. You'd think that we'd learn how to regulate ourselves. No, we need the Proverbs big time. And no matter what everybody else is doing, why don't you root yourself in the wisdom of the ages? There was an interview before the uh, debate the other night of a banker in Franklin, Tennessee. They were doing a little thing, you know, little town of Franklin, these Tennesseans. What are they thinking before the debate? And they went to one of the banks there, and the guy was saying, the bank president was saying, oh, we're, we're fine. We didn't make any of those kinds of loans. You think, where was this guy, you know, just hiding under a rock somewhere, you know? But he just decided he was going to take his liabilities seriously, and he was going to he was going to run with the capital that he had, and he wasn't going to make more loans than he should make, and he was going to make loans that were really safe loans, and it fit the ancient standards for good loans. And he's fine. Uh, you know what? You can be fine, too, in the midst of craziness. If you have wisdom, you can see through the silliness that's going on when people get all fired up and start going in a direction. You can see right through it because all you're doing is you're adding up your liabilities, and you can do arithmetic and you have a head on your shoulders, and you're listening to your father Solomon talking to you. So first of all, renegotiate. Secondly, humble yourself. What does it mean to humble yourself when he says, go and humble yourself? Well, it's humbling to say, you know what? I made a mistake, and I'd like to renegotiate. It's very humbling. And Solomon says, son, let me tell you, wisdom includes humility. You are not going to be a wise person if you can't renegotiate things, if you can't admit that you made mistakes, if you can't go and correct things, you're not going to be a wise person. Just write it off right now. If you have to make perfect decisions every time, you can't live a wise life. Wisdom involves constant repentance, change of mind, perfecting, correcting, and you're the one getting perfected and corrected all the time. And that's what the wise, wise life is all about. So renegotiate, and in that process, you'll have to humble yourself. And then he says, free yourself. Get yourself free. Look at the language he uses in verse 5. Like a gazelle <laughs> from the hand of the hunter. You're trapped like a gazelle and you get free. What does a gazelle do? Run like crazy and celebrate like a bird from the snare of the fowler. You got loose from the snare. Celebrate. Get out of there. Don't do that again. And consider it as you would if you had gone bankrupt. Consider it a lesson that you would have learned if you'd gone bankrupt. You got free, take it as a powerful lesson in your life. I ain't doing that again. Been there, done that. Learn from that lesson, don't want to do it. So just watch yourselves. Don't make foolish guarantees. Uh, and if people have been listening to that, 
our economy would be a very different economy. By the way, uh, for those of you who don't go to second, this Sunday, I'm going to talk about on Sunday morning at the encouragement of several of you about uh, how to find your way through a financial storm. It just seems to me that we need to take a look at this. I know we've got ourselves very nervous and worried, and our children are worried too, uh, in our congregation anyway. They're getting the message really clear that we're all kind of afraid, and and uh, people need to, to know how to make decisions during this. And so you can pick that up on our website if you're interested. It be, should be up on Monday or Tuesday. Well, let's look at the second sort of person. Uh, he talks, first of all, about the surety. And then in verses 6 through 11, he, he talks about the sluggard. And he's basically saying, watch your work ethic. Watch out. And this applies to those of you who are retired as well as to those of you who are just starting out in your careers. Watch your work ethic all the way to the end. Watch out. He says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Now, look what he's saying. In verses 6 through 8, he's saying, make plans for the future. That's what an ant does. Uh, and the ant does it in a couple of ways. First of all, cut your current spending in order to spend later. Duh. <laughs> It's called margins. It's called savings. It's called, you know, not living out the maximum. You know, just because you have $100,000 income doesn't mean you should be spending $100,000. Duh. But somehow we get caught up in a, a culture and we don't think we can measure ourselves successful or cool or prestigious or powerful or whatever unless we're spending at the same level as everybody around us seems to be spending. Once again, don't be washed away in this flood, this avalanche of overspending. People whose credit limits are all busted and who are trying to figure out how to pay off their credit cards because they were spending at a way too high level. And Solomon says, hey, son, look at this. There's a little insect that you might want to consider. He doesn't have a boss or an overseer. He just got intuitive wisdom. And he knows, uh, if you see here in the text, he says, he stores his provisions in the summer. And he gathers his food in the harvest. He stores up things, a little stupid little ant. So look, human being made in the image of God, why don't you just take a look at an ant for a lesson? And he says, you don't have to spend everything you have now. Every insect knows that. <laughs> you, feel, you feel demeaned <laughs> being compared to an ant? Solomon is saying, son, this is not rocket science. And you're being, if you're not careful, you're going to be washed away with the flood of avarice, greed, materialism. This is going to make you a very unwise person. Uh, and then he says, plan your retirement. <laughs> That's store things up for later. Plan it. Now, some of us are having to replan our retirement <laughs> right now. You know, I'm thinking, I think I'll be working, I think I'll be preaching until I'm 87, the way I figure it out. Uh, so, I'm sorry, Second Presbyterian's going to put up with me a little longer, uh, or somebody's going to have to. Uh, but plan for it. And this is what the end is doing. Plan for the future. And so many people are just living as though there's no future. Crazy. So get the future in your head. Make it part of your game plan. Have a plan. Do you have a plan? <laughs> it's amazing. Some guys who, who work in investment banking don't have personal financial plans. It's just amazing to me. They have amazing understanding of macroeconomics, you know, and how everything operates in the economy and how to short something and how to go along in something, and they don't have a plan for their own finances. <laughs> Get a plan. 
And the purpose of a plan is for you to discipline yourself. And, and, and part of your plan obviously needs to be what you're giving away. And about this time of the year, most of you start to need to start thinking about what are you going to give away next year. Instead of responding to things that come in the mail to you so you can make somebody happy and get on their mailing list, why don't you aggressively figure out what you're doing and just tell people, look, if you want a gift from me, you're going to apply to me, and I'll consider it. And it won't be an immediate gift. I might put you in my 09 or my 2010 plan. But you have to, you have to send me. People who call you on the phone, don't ever give anybody who calls on the phone. They must make a proposal to you. And you think about it. And you pray over it. And then you decide if it goes in your plan. You've got a plan for how you're going to give as well as how you're going to spend. You've got a plan for these things. And that way you're going to discipline yourself. And you can set objectives. You can live a meaningful life. You can watch what you're doing. And Solomon is just saying, hey, buddy, look at the ant. Uh, <laughs> then notice, secondly, you got to get out of bed. Anybody in Amen Bible study knows you got to get out of bed. And the interesting thing is the bed... The bed is a wonderful place. I mean, it's one of my favorite places. Great things happen in that bed. I mean, I, I just put my head down and, you know, I'm out. Uh, people who travel with me on the mission field say, you know, Wilson, he does not struggle with a guilty conscience. <laughs> he just put, put his head on the pillow, whoop, he's out. And when I travel, if I'm, if I'm in, on the mission field and I'm rooming with someone, I always take earplugs, not for myself, but for the other poor guy because I'm falling asleep first. <laughs> The bed is wonderful. I love the bed. I'm not a morning person. I'm only a morning person by vocation, not, not by inclination. So I've got to, when that alarm goes off, man, the last thing I want to do is get out of that bed. First thing I want to do is take that alarm clock, throw it through the window, <laughs> and go back and enjoy my slumber. I love sleep. And uh, I know the Lord doesn't slumber asleep, but I do. And I love it. And the big problem is getting out of bed. It really is. I know this problem personally. I've fought it all my life. Get out of bed. you got to get out of bed. And if you'll look in chapter 26 of Proverbs, you'll see, an, uh, am I right, 26? Uh, you'll see an interesting statement here. Ah, yes. <laughs> this is a wonderful statement. Proverbs 26, 14. As a door, this is page 1022. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. I've been that door many times. Wom, wom, wom. He says, you're not anchored to your bed. You're like a door on your bed. You just go back and forth. You never get out. You just roll over. And so he's saying, look, if you're going to watch your work ethic, you've got to get out of bed. And you've got you to move out of those things that just merely are satisfying your immediate desires. You're going to have to discipline yourself. Get out of bed. Now, let me suggest from uh, Derek Kidner, who wrote a commentary on Proverbs, four things that apply to the slothful person. This is what he says. And this is not in your notes. You can just write it in if you want it. First of all, Kidner says, he will not begin things. And you pick that up in the text here where he says, how long will you lie there, you sluggard? So a, a slothful or lazy person doesn't begin things. You can't get him to move, to initiate, to start anything. How long are you going to lie there? And that's the word that keeps going to the sluggard. And you'll notice uh, that it says here in the text, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands. The sluggard is always saying, just a minute. You know, that, listen, once again, personal experience. I'll just sit here just a minute. You know, just a little bit more sleep. I'll just, 
I'll just close my eyes and just think for 10 more seconds, and then I'm out again, you know, and then I'm late to an appointment. So just a little, the, the, the sloth, slothful person is just saying, just a little bit more sleep, just a little bit more time, just back off just a little bit, always asking for a little bit, 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 as to a whole lot. But he only asks for a little bit at a time, a little bit more sleep, a little bit more slumber, and now you're in trouble. So he, first of all, doesn't begin things. Secondly, he doesn't finish things. And as an example of that, turn, I'm sorry, I should have had you keep, keep your finger there, but turn back to chapter 26, Proverbs 26. Look at the next verse, verse 15, 26:15. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, and he is too lazy to bring it to his mouth. <laughs> this is pitiful, isn't it? He's eating, and he gets his hand, you know, into the dish, and he's just too lazy to bring his hand out. Maybe, maybe it feels good being there in the peas, you know. Just, <laughs> and he just can't bring it up to put it to his... He says, that's what a lazy person is like. they got a full meal ahead of them. They might put their hand down, but then you don't ever get them to finish anything. And you know that. You know what it's like. To, you know how frustrating it is either to be a lazy person or try to work with one. They don't finish anything. And then thirdly, right there in chapter 23, 26 again, look at the next verse. And the point here is he always makes excuses. Look at, this is great. Um, oh, I'm sorry, verse 13. This is 26, 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. <laughs> Fierce lion roaming the streets. <laughs> the dog ate my homework. <laughs> there's a lion out there. I can't go out there. The sluggard is always making stupid excuses <laughs> about what he can't do and why he can't do it. Making, dreaming up these crazy things. And coming up with grand schemes for why he did what he did and why he can't do what you want him to do. So typical of a sluggard. And then in verse 16, you pick up, and he thinks he's so smart. And frankly, they are pretty clever. Uh, the sluggard, verse 16, is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who answer discreetly. <laughs> so in his eyes, there may be seven other men who are saying, you knucklehead, we said we need to do this. There's no reason why you can't do it. And as far as the sluggard's concerned, he's smarter than all seven of them. It's amazing. So he makes excuses. And fourthly, he craves for more. If you'll look in chapter 21, and obviously you can tell from this that Solomon has a lot to say about the sluggard throughout the Proverbs. But in chapter 21, verses 25 and 26, here's what Solomon says. The sluggard's craving will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. All day long, he craves for more. But the righteous give without sparing. So look at this. All day long, he's got these cravings. The sluggard is, is not, he, he's not without appetite. He craves more and more. But he can't get, and therefore he's always restless because he has a big craving, and he doesn't want to work, and therefore he's restless. So this is a pretty pitiful picture. It's a pretty dangerous picture, and it's one that any of us can fall into, and from time to time, every one of us falls into it. Every one of us. We're all, tempered, uh, we're all tempted to slothfulness. Now, what's particularly interesting, uh, I, I saw in an article, and I believe Rocky Anthony was passing this around some years ago in Leadership Magazine, uh, about how a slothful person can actually be a very busy person. 
Because the slothful person can get busy with the things that are not really the most important things to do. And there's a sense in which his busyness is actually a substitute and an excuse for avoiding what really needs to be done. You ever catch yourself doing that? I do. There'll be something really weighty and important I need to put myself into, and I'm just flat out lazy, so I just make a bunch of phone calls. Now, they need to be made, those phone calls, but they're not as important as this. And it's actually a form of slothfulness that you can get really busy, and in your own mind, you think you're not a lazy person. And you're not really lazy, but you're being slothful. So sometimes a slothful person is not a lazy person. They're very hardworking. They put in a lot of hours. It's just they don't do the most important things, and some of their busyness is actually a form of avoiding what really needs to be done in their lives. Some of us really need to spend time with our children, and yet we spend time trying to sell that next insurance policy instead of going home and being with our children. That's slothfulness. You may be very busy. You may not be lazy, but you're slothful. You're slacking on the things that are most important in your life. So you see how subtle this sin is? And, that, and Solomon is saying, hey, son, look at the ant. The ant sticks to business. First things, main things are the main thing. And he stays at it, the main things. So when you plan your life, get the most important things in there, and then you put it into your schedule. So you go from your list of priorities to your calendar. And that's the reason. You want to be sure the main things are the main thing, and then you put them in the calendar, and you spend your time accordingly to the main things. That's living a fruitful life. That's the life of the ant that Solomon's talking about. Now, let, before we leave this, let me just suggest some solutions. And once again, this is not in your notes, and, and I think it might be good just to write these things down. But I'd like to suggest a solution that comes from the wisdom of Proverbs and the wisdom of the whole Scriptures, if I could give us three things. The solution to laziness. First of all, Solomon is saying, observe good examples. In this case, he says, look at the ant. Why don't you just look at another guy you know, that you think really is living a meaningful life who has a good work ethic and get to know him and ask him what makes him tick. So observe the examples around you. Take advantage of them. And that's what our fellowship is all about. That's what Amen Bible Study is all about. The reason we're here is to learn the Bible together. And around these tables is a ton of wisdom. So just look and find guys that you think are living the kind of life that you think Solomon is describing to his son, the, the ant's life, and get in there and observe it carefully. See what's making him tick. See how he operates. Secondly, consider outcomes very closely. Consider outcomes. And that's what Solomon says here. He says, poverty, verse 11, will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. You'll be taken over with scarcity. So wisdom is, once again, choosing the good ends and choosing the good means to accomplish those good ends. It is seeing long-term consequences of current behavior. So observe the outcomes. Think through outcomes. And as you get older, you, you get to observe many more cases of outcomes. Sometimes you can see it through generations and families. You can see outcomes. So learn to observe good examples and observe and consider outcomes. The third thing I want to say will pop us right into the New Testament. You, you would expect this of a preacher, I suppose. But the third point would be believe the gospel. 
Believe the gospel. The gospel of Christ is the summation of the deepest mysteries of wisdom in the world. That's what it is. And it's an amazing thing. The deepest wisdom of God is displayed in the gospel. Paul says, you know, the, the Greek, uh, he says the Jew and the Greek both reject it. Uh, the Jew sees it as weakness. The Greek sees it as foolishness. But for us who are being saved, the wisdom of God and the power of God. That's the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me ex try to explain just experientially how the wisdom of the gospel of Christ changes your work ethic. First of all, these, these would be sub-points under believing the gospel. The gospel clearly gives us a purpose in life. The gospel is an announcement of God's kingdom, but it's also an invitation. He says, come follow me. And he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So it's an announcement of the kingdom that's taking over this world. And we end up being citizens of the kingdom of God. And we are in the business now of being his subjects, his sons, his servants in this world. And that defines your overall purpose for all your work. Coming to Christ is getting reemployed. You're going to the employment office. And Christ puts you back in employment. You may be unemployed in the workplace, but you're not unemployed in the kingdom. You're employed, and you know it when you come to Jesus Christ. And I say this, I guess it was the first thing I, I thought of because it was one of the first things I experienced. I just realized when I, when I gave my life to Christ in my mid-20s, I realized, you know what? I have a purpose in life. It's as clear as it can be to me. And I'm so grateful. And at that point, I was selling steel. But I saw my steel sell, selling as being an important contribution to the kingdom of God. How? Well, in seeking to, to live my life with integrity as a business person, in building relationships of mutual service with people in, in, among my customers and in, in the office where I worked, uh, taking the income that I was receiving and taking the tithe and giving it to the Lord, getting involved in my church, getting involved in my community, getting involved in Boy Scouts, getting involved in all kinds of things, that my life is to be given away to people wherever I am or whatever I'm doing. Long before I ever thought, the last thing I thought I'd be was a preacher. I, I guarantee you, the last thing I ever thought I was going to be was a minister. But just to live life before the face of God was exciting to me. I had a purpose. And before that, honestly, I was kind of trying to figure out what the purpose of life is. Because I've been trained in the 60s, like mo uh, a lot of you, you know, in existentialism. And, you know, you have to impose your own meaning on life. And I couldn't impose it. I couldn't figure out what it was. I don't think anybody else does either, really. But in Christ, I found purpose. So you, you have a purpose. Secondly, you have the assurance of God's love. And in the, in the wisdom of the gospel, what I found was that there was no way I could really fail. And you know what? Most of us are impeded in our work ethic because we're afraid. If I get out there and work hard, I'm just going to fail. And it's the fear of failure that often paralyzes people in their work ethic. And so what I found with the gospel was, you know what? There is no way I'm, I'm going to fail. My father, my daddy loves me. <laughs> and some of you had earthly fathers that didn't show that love very much. And it left a big vacant hole in your heart. And what you find with the father is he loves you. He is not going to let you fail. He, you have the assurance of his love. And he is telling you that you're his special son. And you're hearing that message all the time. That builds your work ethic. When it builds your confidence to go out and serve him. And the third thing I found in the gospel was the assurance of God's power. 
You know, because if you're thinking, I don't think I can be successful in this business. I don't think I can sell this product. I don't think I'm smart enough, or I don't think I'm cool enough. Or I don't. God gives you confidence. I'm with you, son. So don't worry about it. I'm going to handle this. And you go out not in your own power in your business. You go out in his power, and you trust him. Lord, just guide me today. Let me be your servant, and let me serve the people that I'm selling to today or that I'm serving in the hospital or that I'm serving in my law practice. Just let me be your, your servant. And you have the assurance that he's going to work his power through you to accomplish his ends. And so you, you have confidence of his affection for you. He will never leave you nor, nor forsake you. And you have the confidence of his working through you. And then uh, you have, uh, fourthly in the gospel, the assurance of God's reward. That maybe from the eyes of the world, you're not going to be the wealthiest person. Maybe the business you chose is not the most profitable. If you're a teacher, well, you know that's true. You just didn't choose a profitable profession. And you know, if you're, if you're a professor or a teacher, you know that people in this society measure you by the clothes you wear and the car you drive and the office you have and, and the house you live in. You know that. But you chose a long time ago not to care about it. Now, you could not care about it but be resentful. You know, people have their values all wrong in this society. They give all these business people all this money, and they don't give the people who are educating the next generation anything at all. And, nah, 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 nah. and you're just as bad off as the wealthy person. You're just as greedy as he is. The only difference between you is he has money and you don't. You're both greedy. Or you can say, you know what? In the mystery of the gospel, the amazing thing is that God is going to give me the universe. And these are just little toys right here. It's just, they're nothings. And they're going to all burn up. You know, and so you get to the end of this life, and all you can say is, my ash pile is bigger than your ash pile. I mean, that's about all it's going to be. So you're living for ultimate reward. You're pleasing your father. You're working in the marketplace and in the community and your church and your home, knowing that the reward is coming from him. You're living for that, and you're already delighting in it, and you can already taste your inheritance. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He gives us a down payment of our ultimate inheritance in Christ, and we can taste it now, and we are satisfied and content. It's the mystery of the gospel that brings that, and this is not a fairy tale. It's not the opiate for the people. This is reality. You're convinced of it. I'm convinced of it. And that's the reason that that I am so delighted that some of you are having to manage all those possessions. And I really appreciate it. And you're paying big taxes so I can drive on these streets out here. And I really appreciate all that you're doing. You're working so hard just for me. Isn't it great? Thank you so much. And, and God has given me this universe and I'm enjoying it. And some of you have these wonderful works of art in your houses. And I want you to know I really enjoy those works of art. And I'm so glad you're willing to take care of them. And I don't have to have all the fancy locks and alarm systems that you have because you're taking care of them. I don't have to take care of them. I can go to the library, and there are all these books just for me. Isn't it wonderful? Somebody has donated all these books, and somebody's taking care of them. It's just great to have these big libraries. And it's all God's world given to me. And one day, it's going to be far beyond anything I can imagine. And so often, we get ourselves all tied up with who has the title to what? Who gives a flying rip? Who has the title? The title is not going to last very long at all. You're giving it up here in just a few years, and some of you, it's sooner than later. <laughs> you're looking like you're getting real close. You know, so what are you worrying about titles for? <laughs> it just doesn't matter. 
the wise person in Jesus Christ is liberated from this. And it actually increases your work ethic because you're seeking to achieve good ends with good means. You know what you're doing and your plan makes sense and it's rooted in the heavenlies. And I want to tell you, that's kind of the bottom line for figuring out how to get through this mess we're in right now. Just, just make a plan, will you? Just make a plan. You're not responsible for the national economy. You're just responsible for what you do with it. Make a plan. So move in a smaller house. Is that going to kill you? Sell your car and get a cheaper one. Some of you driving these cars that you spend $60,000 on, hey, I can tell you what, you can find a $15,000 car. Do you know that? They actually exist out there. Some of you don't even know that. They're out there. You can find one. And you know what? It won't kill you. And your kids won't fall apart because you have a $15,000 car. It won't kill you. So make a plan. And most people right now, all they need to do really is make a plan and stop worrying about it. Uh, there's plenty of food out there, plenty of clothing, plenty of housing. We'll be all right, you know. You're just worried because you won't be in that big house with that big car, you know, with all the privileges, you know, that you've considered your rights. Just make a plan. Get out of bed and work the plan. There you go. Last person that you want to avoid being like is the troublemaker. And Solomon says, son, live with integrity. Live with a good heart and a good life and a good speech and get your life together and go in a direction that's a life of service. Avoid the life of the scoundrel and the villain. And this word is just troublemaker. Two words that just say insurrection, troublemaking, a destructive life. Avoid the life of the scoundrel and the villain. He has a corrupt mouth. He has winking eyes. He's always winking. Yeah. You know, speaking over here telling this group something and winking over here. You know, he's not sincere. He says one thing to one person, another thing to another person. He's, he's deceitful. You can't trust him. He has wandering feet. So he's going with a deal over here, but, you know, in the dark, he'll go over here. You don't even know where he's going to end up. He has malicious fingers. He knows how to calculate a little differently than the rest of us. And he picks up things that don't belong to him. He has evil plans. He's always scheming. And of course, these schemes don't have to do with advantaging you. It has to do with advantaging him. You always have to watch him because all of his schemes are always self-centered. He's always trying to advance himself and not advance other people. And he has a deceitful heart. His heart is not integrated with what he's saying. So he's saying one thing, he's thinking another and feeling another and planning another. So there's no integrity. Integrity means to have consistency from the inside out. So you don't get his heart with his voice. You're getting a different message on what he's really thinking. It doesn't take long to figure this out with a person. And then seventhly, he always breaks relationships. Everybody, you, a person like that doesn't leave his office intact. What he leaves is people who are at war with each other because his malicious, deceitful ways are contagious and it builds distrust in the environment. A person that doesn't have integrity will always... Uh, cause distrust of people around him. And you can see it. You just think about it. Some businesses you know or some offices you know or some, some practices that you know where people don't trust each other, I'll guarantee in the middle of that thing is somebody who's not living a life of integrity and who is foisting all of this on his environment. And maybe it's more than one. Solomon says, son, that is a scoundrel. That is a villain. That is a troublemaker. And furthermore, these troublemakers, sometimes all they want to do is undo 
the organization that's there and undo the structures that are there and undo the rules that are there and the policies that are there, constantly making trouble. And it's just, it's, it's a terrible disease. And we can look at what's underneath it all. What's underneath it all is that a person hasn't really surrendered their life to God through Jesus Christ. They haven't really come to grips with who they are. They don't know that they need help. They haven't asked for forgiveness. They haven't turned their life over to Him. And they're very frustrated. And their frustrations work in just spewing evil. And all of us are tempted to do this when we get frustrated, just to be troublemaker. My daddy didn't love me, so I'm not going to love you. My mama didn't take care of me, so I'm going to ruin this government, or I'm going to ruin this business, or I'm going to undermine this person. And sometimes you live in two or three worlds, you don't even know you're doing it. You're so frustrated. And Solomon says, watch out for this person. Avoid the life of the scoundrel and the villain. And he's saying, not only avoid it for your own behavior, but learn how to discern when this is happening with someone else. They're just a restless, loose cannon. And don't get hooked up and be yoked with that kind of a person. Because when you do, you're just simply showing that you too are the scoundrel and the villain, or at least part of you is. And he's saying, secondly, B, the scoundrel's outcome is not good. This doesn't end anywhere good. If you look in verse 15, he says, Therefore disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. This is all coming to a conclusion, and it's not a good conclusion. And you may think that you're ripping people off and getting by with it, but it's, you're not going to get by with it. 90% of the time, you don't get by with it in this life. And the Proverbs are true in time and space. 100% of the time, the Proverbs are correct when it comes to eternity. You're not getting by with it. Why? Because the scoundrel will face immediate irremediable disaster 90% of the time, but in every case, the disaster comes from God. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. He lists seven things there. The Lord hates it. So what you're dealing with is not just the odds that your business is going to crumble or people are going to find you out. This is a personal thing. It's a personal offense against your Creator. When you are being deceitful with those around you, you don't have your li a life of integrity, you can't be predicted because your words are not consistent with a good heart, you really need to get your heart straight. So how do you do that? I only know one way. I think the Bible only knows one way. And that is, you've got to admit that your heart is by nature wicked. By nature, your heart is deceitful. By nature, you do play games with people and take advantage of them. By nature, you do divide and conquer instead of unifying and together conquering. By nature, you divide and conquer. By nature, you want to bring other people down so you can feel like you're going up. By nature, you want to get people at odds with each other. Let's get the Chinese and the Russians fighting each other, and therefore we won't have to worry about them unifying against us. That's human nature. And so you have to acknowledge that's your nature. That's the first thing. Secondly, you have to realize this is not good. The Lord hates this. And I am opposing the Lord's will for my life. Thirdly, you acknowledge I can't do anything about it. I'm powerless on my own. I need help. Fourthly, you ask for help. Lord, help me. Fifthly, you accept the help He gives. Oh, I don't want Jesus. That would be embarrassing. Lord, do you have plan B? 
He gives you Jesus Christ as the summation of all wisdom. Jesus Christ as the conqueror of your wicked heart. Jesus Christ is the one who will put a new heart in you. Jesus Christ who gives you a perfect example. Jesus Christ who gives you his power. Jesus Christ who gives you his promises. Jesus Christ who forgives you all your sins. You cannot do this without him. You're not going to. God will see to that. So ask for help and accept the help he gives. And humble yourself. You need exactly what he gave. He didn't give you this solution. I promise you this. God did not send His Son to die on a cross uselessly. God did not send His Son to die on a cross if there's some other way to get wisdom. What a total waste of the blood of His own Son. God sent His Son because that's exactly what it takes and He loves you enough to give you exactly what you need. This is the way to avoid the one who's putting up security foolishly. It's the way to avoid the one who slumbers and is the sluggard and it's the way to avoid the one who's just the troublemaker because his heart's not in control under the Lord. These are the things for us to avoid along with the adulteress. And uh, next time we'll pick up with kind of a summation of all of this wisdom in these first nine chapters that Solomon is telling his son. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we do confess this morning that we make irresponsible financial decisions from time to time and we need your help to know how to renegotiate and humble ourselves and get ourselves free and make a new plan we ourselves uh, tend to be slothful and sometimes even in our busyness we're very slothful and we need your help just to observe your creatures the ant and other men around us who are living fruitful lives help us to learn from them how to be people of a solid godly work ethic and Lord, we, we confess that we sometimes have been the scoundrel. We've been the ones who've left divided relationships in our path. And we ask that you'll help us learn from Jesus Christ how to build bridges among people and how to have influence of unifying people around us that we may no longer be the villain, but the one who heals, the one who helps, and the one who unifies. Now God, go with us that we may be men of wisdom in this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.